0: This is an RNZ podcast.
1: This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. The internet hasn't just disrupted the media business this millennium, it's transformed it and in some cases overwhelmed whole parts of it. This week we talked to the outgoing chief executive at Internet NZ about the web unfolding in unexpected and sometimes unpleasant ways for our media over the past 20 years. We also look at awkward unanswered questions about the government's plan for a new public media entity this week after the big reveal of big money in the budget last week and why one outlet targeting top earning readers won't be most of the costly new cars on the market in its motoring section anymore.
2: The new Ram 1500 pickup truck. Eats utes for breakfast.
1: But first, COVID complications prompted the Prime Minister to miss her plane this week, but the media was a big part of her plan once the late show got underway in the US this week.
0: Sand, Amelia, the Prime Minister isn't there yet, but is already making a mark on the world stage. That's right, Jacinda Ardern hasn't even left for the United States yet, but the announcement she made today was fully intended to make America impressed.
1: That was News Hub at 6 last Monday, making big news out of the Prime Minister's first trip to the US in the COVID-19 era. And at that point last Monday night, it hadn't even got underway. Without the Prime Minister there to report on, Amelia Wade made up for it by waving a picture of Jacinda Ardern at random people in Hollywood.
2: I don't know who she is.
3: She looks like a politician.
1: Now there, Amelia Wade was marking time because the Prime Minister had postponed because of catching COVID earlier this month. Seven days earlier, Today FM's Tova O'Brien criticised Jacinda Ardern and her people... And putting that trip in jeopardy like that was nothing less than a balls-up, a breathless Tova O'Brien told her listeners.
0: These trips are priceless for brand New Zealand. No-one is blaming the Prime Minister for getting COVID, obviously, and as I say, I wish her well, but I'm not convinced that she took the right approach here. Being just like the rest of us has a nice kind of Team of Five Million vibe to it, but unfortunately, the job means she is not just you or me. She runs the country, she makes the rules, some of which are obsolete, and unfortunately for her, uh, have cost her and the country greatly.
1: And seven days later, the Prime Minister was off to the US after all, to meet up with the media, already there, and obviously anxious to see her again. And the media had certainly been factored into the plan for this major trip. On day one, Jacinda Ardern met travel editors from some of the biggest publishers in the U.S., and TVNZ1 News summed up the effort like this on Wednesday. We're open again and looking for business, Jacinda Ardern's message to America on her first day of her post-lockdown reconnection mission. Though TVNZ's U.S. correspondent Anna Burns-Francis said that that would be an uphill battle right now.
0: Inflation here is sky high and being tamped down by interest rate hikes. A recession is on the way. Americans are being told to stay home and save money. Prepare to weather the economic storm ahead.
1: And as if to make that point, the Prime Minister's trip was pushed down the One News running order by a hike in interest rates here and by that school shooting in Texas, which meant it wasn't really a great time either for another stint on the CBS Late Show with superfan Stephen Colbert.
0: You know, When I watch from afar and see events such as those today, I think of them not as a politician, I see them just as a mother and I'm so sorry for what has happened here.
1: But in another sense, maybe the timing was perfect for that given what had happened in Texas and for the Harvard commencement speech which she delivered overnight on Friday addressing the role of technology and specifically social media on our public life, public safety and democracy.
0: What we consider to be the mainstream media outlets have proliferated, but ownership structures have not. Mainstream media have layers of accountabilities and journalistic expectation that others who also present information to us don't. There is competition in advertising revenue with subscription services and paywalls, all to aid in the survival of the fittest, with fittest now defined by how easy it is to monetize your content. And in amongst all of that lies the fact we're not talking about how we access information to inform debate, but whether you can call it information at all.
1: Like many, Jacinda Ardern said she had no idea what was to come when she first experienced the internet as a high school kid in the 1990s, and how social media platforms with billions of users would end up as avenues for radicalisation.
0: Let's start with transparency and how algorithmic processes work and the outcomes they deliver. But let's finish with a shared approach to responsible algorithms, because the time has come.
1: And on MediaWatch last weekend, we had a long look also at how social media companies keep secret those algorithms that amplify extreme content. We talked about that, among others, with outgoing chief executive at Internet New Zealand, Jordan Carter. Now, he was there in Paris when the Christchurch call was signed three years ago, but in almost 20 years at Internet New Zealand, the last 10 as its leader he's seen the internet develop from an interesting option for our media industry to its driving force. Well, This week, I asked Jordan Carter if our media are better off with the internet, but those who aren't better off economically, aren't. Right, one of the
4: challenges we've got is that yes, the media claim is important, but who's who's out there saying we're going to fund citizen access to the media or education or healthcare or emergency response or when there's a pandemic and you want to see what the government's saying about it. There's a massive public interest almost in making sure that everyone can get broadband for free. But we're, that isn't a discussion that's happening in our society.
1: Yeah, people often sort of these days, I think, talk about the internet as if it is ubiquitous and even you know, high-speed access and services like everyone can get them. But you're saying that the digital divide is real and policymakers, indeed, you know, broadcasters who decide where and how to distribute their content um, should bear that in mind?
4: And that's one of the things I've been most bemused about as successive governments have done a great job on the connectivity side of things, getting the networks rolled out. But this little slice of digital inclusion stuff has just been manifestly resistant to this tiny investments that would be needed to sort it out. What is that simple solution you're talking about that
1: wouldn't be expensive?
4: In, in the school situation, it might be exactly that, you know, subsidizing broadband things. It might be that we need to do that for um, for people who are in social housing, as another example. It might be that there are some deals government could do with the big ISPs or even smaller ISPs to to get some discount plans available for people who uh, are in the most need or provide vouchers. There's lots of way to crack this nut. You know, it's just it's a piece of unfinished business that I'm frustrated to be leaving behind on my part.
1: Well, a few years back when I looked through our records, we had a chat with you. This is um, when Sky tried to merge with Vodafone, and I think the Commerce Commission said no in the end, because it would have been perhaps too big a business, and and aspects of their business would have been uh, monopolistic or shut out competition. But um, at the time, I had this bit of a theory that our news media companies particularly, but also entertainment ones, might end up being just kind of mere divisions of telcos, you know, It turns out I was completely wrong. And I think you actually told me so at the time. I said, no, connectivity isn't really the issue, but um, was I completely off the mark?
4: Connectivity to different sorts of networks being bundled together is a more logical grouping. Power companies are offering ISPs or the ISPs offering power contracts. That feels a bit more um, aligned, a bit more of a happy um, joining up together. Than the sort of disruptive, highly competitive um, media environment coming alongside raw connectivity and attachment to a utility infrastructure that that ISPs represent. So um, yeah, Colin, I do think you were completely wrong.
1: Do you think uh, news media companies have made uh, the best use of what digital technology and the internet has had to offer? I mean, it's, it's only late in the game that they're starting to try and harvest revenue that way by, you know, subscribers or even donors? For a long time, they gave away news for free. Do you think they've perhaps not really adapted as quickly as as they ought to have?
4: I don't think any sector has. The music industry is a counterpoint that started facing this challenge big time, maybe earlier than than news and has kind of gotten over the hump earlier as well you know the the, for a long time music industry revenues are falling and people were saying it was the end of the music industry but that you don't hear that kind of stuff anymore because the business models have evolved and i think you're starting to see in the local media environment some of the subscriber um journalism that's going on with systems like Substack or the the newsroom example that people are prepared to put some money in for content and some of the bigger firms have started to make more use of the options that tech has got available so They are slightly slow to move on things that they could think through and do. But I don't think that's different to other sectors. You know, it's fascinating to see, for example, the management biotech stuff and to just see where that goes over the next few years.
1: You know, one concept that we've seen, the culture wars have sprung up. We could spend all day talking uh, about that. But I wonder, do you fear in the end, to go back to where we started, that sensible restrictions on the Internet for the public good uh, are going to be difficult are going to be caught up in you know kind of cultural and political sometimes even party political battles about free speech and and, and freedom
4: There might be you know we've talked already about the dynamic of these algorithms that tend to highlight um content that is um anger inducing the other kind of point in that culture war environment is that bizarrely what's happened in the ukraine has helped to highlight that Um, The Russian state for quite a long time has made use of um, some of the vulnerabilities of this social media environment to intervene in other countries. And they seem to have an agenda um, to say, well, we can't ever win a a head-on confrontation with liberal democracies, but we can use these systems they're built to undermine their social cohesion and their political cohesion. And so that's a kind of risk that I think people are waking up to and are starting to get grips, not with how to solve, but at least to be aware of. So the culture war stuff, and to the extent that it plays out online, is a little bit um, fermented by, by powers like that. There's a lot of um, positive stuff that, that has come out of this increasing social mediaization. The problem isn't when some person chooses to express Um, random view X that I might or might not disagree with. The problem is when the systems amplify it in a way that then creates social divisions that weren't necessarily there. What is new is the way that these um, media systems fasten on to the most controversial and polarising views and then just keep serving them up in a way that draws people apart from each other. So I think if in New Zealand, if we can look at the reforms that we might be contemplating, things like the hate speech law or whatever it is, and go, it's never about stifling anyone's individual commentary or thinking. It's about saying, how do we create systems of law and regulation that we do in every other media environment that can tackle the, the systemic propagation of this stuff. And I think that could take the temperature out of it a bit. Maybe I'm too much of an optimist on that. 10 years ago, we were the ethos is really cyber libertarian, you know, stay out of the way, just leave the internet to do its own thing. And certainly for me and for us, that the what happened in Christchurch was the wake-up call that said, no, 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 no. We need to actually have effective responses to some of this kind of content, which is just beyond the pale. Um, and so I think that our internet and Zed's perspective now has shifted a fair way to say there are real harms that can be done online, and we need to address and tackle those in ways that are sensible and proportionate and that are about making sure that the society and community as a whole can be a prosperous and, and happy and safe one. Rather than just saying, as we might have done 10 years ago, yeah, the internet's fine, just leave it alone. But you're right, there's a lot of work going on. And, and as the internet touches more and more parts of life, th- those areas are going to grow
1: as well. That was Jordan Carter, the outgoing chief executive of Internet NZ, stepping down after 20 years there, the last nine as its leader. During which time, he helped broker the Christchurch Call in Paris, along with Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, who, during her US trip this week, met with some of the tech companies and platforms who committed to the Christchurch Call three years ago, and she's following up on its progress. That's something we looked at on MediaWatch last weekend. If you missed it, it's on the MediaWatch page of the RNZ website or our section of the RNZ app, or you'll You'll find it in our podcast feed under the title Slaves to the Algorithm. Five years ago, former broadcaster and editor and public broadcasting advocate David Beatson, whose health was failing at the time, said this in an NZ on-screen interview about his life and
2: times. My last fight is on now and it's because I believe that the current broadcasting model is probably on its knees. And so I want to see the resources that we have rejigged so that we can have a non-commercial free-to-air television system which Radio New Zealand should be involved with. And I am lobbying like hell. The last job I'm going to do, that's my target. I'll get it. But To hell with it,
1: I'll get it. Well, David Beetson didn't get that non-commercial TV broadcasting that he wanted for New Zealand before he died later that year. But five years on, one state-owned entity offering radio and TV is the current government's plan, with a mix of commercial revenue and public funding. And last week, Budget 2022 earmarked an additional $327 million over three years for that – and the Minister of Broadcasting and Media, Chris Farfoy, committed to funding around half of the entity's annual operating budget, around $200 million a year, until 2026. Now, the plan is to have that up and running in a little over a year from now, but as we heard on MediaWatch last weekend, other details are still thin on the ground. The Minister has guaranteed all existing non-commercial services, such as RNZ National, Concert and Pacific, will still be provided, but the nuts and bolts of how the new autonomous Crown entity will run, who will run it and exactly what else it will do are yet to be determined by a recently appointed establishment board. And as we heard last week, the minister declined to be interviewed on this programme about all of that. But this week he did front up in an online forum organised by the campaign group The Better Public Media Trust, where he also delivered its annual address in memory of David Beetson.
5: I kind of worked with David a little bit back in 2014, Uh, as opposition spokesperson for broadcasting, um, very uh, useful to draw on his wisdom and knowledge.
1: Chris Farfoy went on to say that better-funded public media will be good for journalism and, in the end, our democracy, and he hoped that David Beetson would have approved of what he's now doing. But the rest of the address was a restatement of the commitments already made so far and
5: of his belief that RNZ and TVNZ today are out of time. RNZ and TVNZ were set up for a different world around the focus of traditional radio and television. And within the constraints of the existing legislation, they've done what they can do to change, to modernise and meet significant challenges. We know they are both trusted and valued. And this makes me optimistic about what we can achieve for public media when we have an entity with modern, enabling legislation, a consistent focus, flexibility, and with principles, structure and funding to nurture content and feed audiences. That modern legislation that Chris Farfoy spoke about there
1: will be crucial, and it will have to be tabled within a couple of months. And the minister said he's on
5: to it. We know uh, that we want this entity. We know what we want this ach- entity to achieve, and a legislated charter will set out the entity's purpose and objectives. But the task of creating a new entity is starting. Uh, the establishment board, which um, is chaired by the honourable Tracy Martin, who's Uh, both um, on this call and is on your next session, will oversee the detailed design of the entity and the change process.
1: On his blog Nightly News this week, the former New Zealand Herald editor-in-chief Gavin Ellis argued that the government has put the cart before the horse here. He said that establishment board tasked with filling in the details will be circumscribed by that legislation, which must be well advanced by now and he said the public deserved to have a much clearer picture before the three years of financing were committed to something that's due to be up and running in little more than a year. Another question unanswered so far is, what's the role of the government's broadcasting funding agency, New Zealand On Air, currently the avenue for the bulk of public money for our public media? Will it fund programmes and content for a new public media entity, as it has for TVNZ in the past? And if not, will the budget of New Zealand On Air then fall over time? Well, when asked about that at Tuesday's virtual meeting, this
5: was the Broadcasting Minister's response. Those kind of decisions are still going to be worked through. I would reiterate the point that I had made uh, last in the previous answer, is that we want to maximise our public media outcomes, regardless of where they are realised, whether that be through the new public media entity uh, or whether that be through funding from New Zealand on air. Uh, we don't want both of those entities... Um, creating the same kinds of content. Uh, We want to make sure that that's coordinated so we get maximum output, uh, maximum content and maximum audiences for a limited amount of money that taxpayers will always be able to make sure is directed to public broadcasting or public media.
1: But that adds no clarity at all to a matter that must have been considered by the Ministry for Culture and Heritage, or by those working on the soon-to-be-seen legislation underpinning the new public media entity, or by the expert advisory group appointed to draft the charter for it and scrutinise the business case that was demanded by Cabinet, or by at least one of the groups of consultants who contributed to that business case. It all means that no one really knows how much money will be available to the new entity and to public media and the creation of local content as a whole in the future. Now, answering questions about the oversight of the public media entity and its commitment to children, the Zoom link to the minister in his Beehive office then failed, and that was the end of his participation last Tuesday night. Hopefully not a sign of difficulties the government might experience delivering better broadcasting to the public from 2023. But after that, a panel for interested parties then debated his plan, including the sceptical Gavin Ellis. I have no
2: idea what the structure of this entity is going to be like. I fear that it's going to have two divisions that will have different names, but in fact will be Radio New Zealand and Television New Zealand. If it does that, it's failed. This entity will be monitored by more state agencies than ever before. There are at least four and as many as six that will have some form of oversight into what it's doing. Now, this is at a time when trust in in media and trust in government is at an all-time low. If we don't do something to ensure the absolute independence of this entity from any forms of government control over and above annual appropriations of funding for public good, then it will not gain the trust of the public.
1: And while a minister had spoken of a new public media entity fit for the future that will even deliver for the children of tomorrow, what happens after 2026 when the current funding commitment ends? Indeed, what will happen after 2023 if the government changes soon after the new public media entity is created? The chair of the Public Media Entity Transition Board, Tracy Martin, told the meeting this.
6: No government can bind the hands of a future government. Um, you can only do your best to make sure that everybody understands that this is a good idea um, and also to bring the public with you so that it's politically not a good idea to muck around with it.
1: But some opponents will take some convincing. The National Party's broadcasting spokesperson, Melissa Lee, complained that she'd been cut out of the process with the exception of Tracy Martin.
4: I have not been consulted. Tracy was the only person who came and saw me that one time.
1: And back in March, when the public media entity was finally confirmed by the government, Melissa Lee told MediaWatch that her national party didn't support it, but wouldn't waste money unpicking it. And Melissa Lee said that again in last Tuesday's debate.
4: I'm not just going to scrap it just because, you know, um, you know, we have a different view. Uh, I, I don't want to waste money if it is actually a good idea. As I said to the minister, and also Tracy, right at the beginning, if it's a good idea, of course I'll support it.
1: But barely 12 hours later, on RNZ's Morning Report, her party leader Christopher Luxon said he'd put the public media entity funding back in the public purse.
2: Yeah, no interest in doing a merger of TVNZ. TV, right? Okay, He's so
0: even even when the money's been spent, you'd still well, wind then, it back. So that is a waste of money, then, then isn't it?
2: This is the point, isn't it? I mean, the government has no idea why it's doing it. Uh, it's, got, it's spending $325 million, considering the enterprise value of both organisations, for what benefit, for what outcome?
1: Earlier, the minister, Chris Farfoy, had told the meeting in his David Beetson address, better public media was a public good for which the public should pay, though there's clearly not a consensus on that among the politicians who have the power to make or break public broadcasting, to nurture it or strangle it, depending on the public mood and the national finances. The clock is now ticking on this effort to build something that will take the public with it and political opponents. New car sales have never been higher than they are today and that means they're spending more on slick ads and special sponsorships to make their vehicles visible to us via the media. And that means more news shows supported by car makers and motoring sections that pull in that low-hanging fruit of big ads for utes and other cars. But while motoring means more much-needed money for our media, that jars with the way that more of them are also promising to take the climate emergency seriously. Last Sunday, one outlet drew a line in the gravel with a clear commitment to give gas guzzlers a swerve in its coverage. Hayden Denell reports on that now and whether other media are giving way to the carbon-emitting car industry by giving their publicity a green light.
3: That's the sound of a Hyundai slicing through a parking barrier with some sort of invisible cutting implement. It's the beginning of a minute-long ad which follows the SUV as it literally cuts down everything in its path, from school kids' ties to the entire side of a cliff. It's not new for cars to leave a trail of destruction in our ads. Here's Barry Crump perfectly bisecting Scotty's face with a mud splatter as he crushes his way through wildlife in a classic much-loved ad for the Toyota Highlands. And
2: it's tough. The answer gets a bit bumpy,
6: eh? Ow! Well, that's down the middle, mate. A bit of a short you're not married, eh?
3: No. These ads have only become more macho over the years, to the point that now utes are literally devouring other utes.
2: The new Ram 1500 pickup truck. Eats utes for breakfast.
3: This advertising strategy has been effective. Last year, eight of New Zealand's 10 best selling new vehicles were SUVs or light trucks, in a continuation of a multi year trend. That's reflected in the motoring sections of our media, which run ads for SUVs alongside articles devoted to things like the five best utes you can buy or positive reviews of light trucks. One of those from NZME's Driven even promises that a Ram 2500XL light truck will make, quote, women swoon, small children scream in delight, and men cast jealous glares at you, end quote. As with property, motoring is a big earner for the media. And as with property, that coverage and its accompanying advertising come with some built-in moral conundrums about a directly correlated crisis. In property, that's the housing crisis. In motoring, it's climate change. A 2019 research paper titled Beasts, published in the New Zealand Medical Journal, found light utility vehicles are transport's biggest carbon emitters and that their fine particle emissions are a serious health hazard. Their popularity also slows our transition to more carbon-efficient vehicles, which the latest IPCC report identifies as an important step for countries wanting to get themselves off a path towards an unlivable world. All that's before mentioning they kill people at roughly twice the rate of smaller cars in crashes. These issues throw up some prickly questions for media organisations that have committed to treating climate change as the biggest story in the world, or in the words of staff putting it at the forefront of the national conversation. One of those is whether they should be accepting money from big polluters, given their editorial stance. For most media companies, the answer is yes, and sometimes that motoring industry money is even directly attached to journalism on the environment. For instance, the car maker behind the ad we played at the top of this segment, Hyundai, is the sponsor for Newsroom's new Sustainable Future section. It's hardly alone in using motoring money to fund worthy, important journalism. Even the hard nosed current affairs reporting of the much missed Campbell Live was introduced like this
2: Campbell Live, driven by Mazda.
3: Professor Alistair Woodward has written about the ads underpinning Aotearoa's increasing reliance on oversized use. He's had first hand experience of these types of jarring juxtapositions. When one of his articles raising concerns about aggressive Ute advertising was published on stuff, it was accompanied by a video announcing the website's top Ute of twenty twenty. I asked what he thinks of these kinds of juxtapositions and his answer was, it's complicated.
6: It depends, you know, sort of on scale and bulk, and the advertising of cars is such a big part of the landscape. There is a lot of money. $370 $370 million a year, would that make sense? You know, a, a, of that order of magnitude is spent in New Zealand, according to Nielsen, on advertising cars. It's a tricky
3: one to get around, right? Because I'm at RNZ, you're at a university, we're not reliant on the market to make a crust, and media organisations are. They have to stay afloat, they often have to
6: accept advertising from
3: sources they may not agree with.
6: I absolutely accept, you know, the media requires funding and advertising is part of that. What I am saying is, what are the interests at play? How might this influence and obstruct the role of the media? And what can we do about it? Uh, But that just means we need to be open and honest about it. Um, And at the moment, you know, I don't see much of that openness and honesty.
3: Do you think it's partly that we're just not used to thinking about cars in these terms?
6: No, look, I think that's true. Um... With climate change, we're having to expand our sense of what constitutes harmful consumption. Alcohol, tobacco, gambling. I guess all of those, we have a a clear understanding of how, in some circumstances, use of these products can, can be harmful. Cars, maybe not. But as you say, we won't get on top of climate change unless we change our transport system in a radical way. And as part of that, we need to drive less, uh, we need to use cars less.
3: As Woodward says, these kinds of compromises are, to an extent, unavoidable for commercial media trying to get by in a world where many of their advertisers contribute to climate change. That's a point Stuff's editor-in-chief, Patrick Crudson, made to Jeremy Rose on Media Watch in 2019. That's true, it's fair to
1: say that companies that are large emitters advertise with us. It's also fair to say that Stuff is a commercial news operation and we fund ourselves through advertising. Uh, It's better that we continue to exist and can publish not just on climate change but on all the other social good that we deliver through our journalism uh, rather than cutting ourselves out of business by cutting off all our advertising.
3: There's also an argument that funding quality journalism is a better use of car companies' resources than, say, using dark money to stop legislative action to strengthen environmental standards. Some media are starting to draw more definitive lines when it comes to how they treat transport's polluters. Last Sunday, business desk general manager and motoring writer Matt Martell published an article saying he would no longer be reviewing petrol-based cars. He said while he still loves those gas-guzzling talky cars, it's, quote, just not worth killing the planet for them. Martel talked to MediaWatch about how come he made that choice and whether other media should follow.
7: I, I could see that I was coming into the industry at the time of a great wave coming through of electric vehicles and, and, and technology, sort of kicked off by Tesla, and you could see what was about to happen. The car manufacturers, almost all of them, are really excited by electric because it's, I think, easier to manufacture They can charge higher margins on them um, and they feel like they're doing some good. So there's not a lot of pushback from car makers on electric. You've got to have three things for electric vehicles to work. One is you've got to have government policy, which we now have with the clean car rebate. Then you've got to have manufacturers making them, which we now have uh, at scale. And then you've got people wanting to buy them. To me, that means I can't justify doing petrol cars anymore. Got to the point where you'd put your foot down on some of those cars and you just think... I don't know what this is doing for my grandchildren. You know, I I don't know what this is going to do for future generations. There's so many good electric alternatives. And you you get to the point where that guilt just builds up and up and up. And I think a lot of people feel that way. Was that a financial risk for Business Desk? Firstly, we're subscriber-funded largely. Our newsroom is powered by, by subscribers. If you think about the market we cover... In that luxury market, it's a much higher percentage of electric vehicles being sold. If anything, it's possibly advantageous to us, but I don't think we've had a motoring advert on Business Desk for the better part of a year. Um, But I I do know that if you look at the print publications, if you look at the digital ones, and there there are a huge number of New Zealand digital car publications, most of the car manufacturers now are advertising their most fuel-efficient vehicles, the electric vehicles, the ones that qualify for a clean car rebate. So the the industry is moving possibly ahead of the journalism.
3: Do you think that other media should be copying you and taking your editorial stance and saying, "Look, we're not going to do, we're not going to review particularly gas guzzlers anymore."
7: We in the media have been through a rough twenty years. I, I've lived that. <laughs> if if you start turning away advertising because you have a qualm about what they're doing you know it just means fewer journalists the fewer journalists is not good for the country so we we need to take advertising within reason where we can get it is there a conflict between taking car ads if you have an environmental stance that I, I guess i would say there is but we're moving as a as a country so quickly to electric that's what the manufacturers want to promote anyway
3: We've almost been trying to talk you out of your own stance for a while here or yeah, moderate no, it. But but you've decided to draw the line in quite a different place, right? Having said all these moderating factors for other media and they're understandable, but why have you taken that personal moral stance and your business has taken that personal stance?
7: Because for us, it's the right thing to do. And I think for our audience, it's the right thing to do. I've had uh, maybe 100 comments on social media. I've had two negative ones. I would have had 30 emails from people, I've only had one negative email, it feels like the good thing to do right now. And like I said, it, it, you just get that guilt that builds up over time. I'm not going to lose sleep over the fact that I'm not going to get to drive the Maserati MC20 supercar.
3: Would you recommend this choice to other media organisations and motoring
7: writers? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely I would. I don't think you'd find many journalists who are not excited by the future of electric vehicles and hydrogen
1: vehicles too. That was the general manager at subscription-based online news service Business Desk, Matt Martell, who's also its motoring writer, and he declared this week he would no longer be writing about petrol-powered cars. Let's see if it catches on. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, though we'll be back with more on the media in Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night on The Lately Show talking to Karen Hay. And then back with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.